0: You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm David Manty, and welcome to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five biggest stories on our websites and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email us, you can reach the podcast by emailing Jeff, Anna, or David at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Anna, how are you doing this week?
0: Great. Back from vacation and ready to put the hammer down.
1: Oh, my- Jeff, the hammer's <laughs> coming down this week.
2: <laughs> yes, that it was a, um, an observation by one of our listeners that Anna is undoubtedly the hammer of the podcast.
0: I got to judge Judy at this place. Keep some oh. water around here.
2: Jeff, we're the, <laughs> the nails.
1: Everybody has a role, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I didn't think it was the nails.
2: <laughs> please overthink that a little bit. Don't talk, oh, well, don't talk
0: about fasteners of any kind, please.
1: <laughs>
0: we'll not, get to this. You're we'll, we'll get not to this.
1: Well I would you. just, for the record, like to get everyone to know <laughs> I do know the difference between nuts and bolts, but not always. <laughs> Oh, that's all right. My career's in the tank. But now, before we uh, get rolling, I also wanted to say that every Friday at about 1.30 uh, p.m. Central Time, we go live on YouTube. So if you want to interact a little bit more with the podcast, if you want to ask questions to us live, you can uh, reach us on our YouTube channel. I believe we broadcast it on our IEN YouTube channel. Um, just leave comments right in the comment section and we'll answer them live throughout the podcast. Now, before we get into it, we have a word From our sponsor. Oil Eaters household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe, water based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non chemical scent. Our ultra concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications safely and cost-effectively while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. All right, and we're back. And before we jump into it, I just wanted to make sure everyone knew that I know the difference between a bolt and a nut. I'm glad you've moved past this. Except for that one time that thousands of people caught. (laughs) All right. Our first story this week. The world's first robot burger in a box. Robo Burger, a company based in Newark, New New Jersey, has unveiled the world's first robot burger in a box. Essentially, it's a red box for cheeseburgers. The twelve square foot metal box contains a refrigerator and automated self cleaning griddle. The meat is locally sourced grass fed and one hundred percent Angus beef. You place your order using a touchscreen, select your condiments—ketchup, uh, mustard, and cheese—and pay for the burger. It takes about six minutes and it costs about seven dollars. Robo Burgers founders say they were driven to provide a hot food source for students, travelers and busy workers at any time of day. Now, Anna, I know maybe not a beef burger in a box, but would you buy a bean burger in a box?
0: I think so. Um, You know, I'd have to like scout the box out first and just see (laughs) what it's about. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually like this story. Um, I think it made me laugh a little bit because we love reinventing the wheel in America. Like, um, hot food vending has been around for a long time, especially globally. I think it's more common that you find like pizza machines, coffee machines um, on like a street corner in an airport or something in a shopping mall. Mm-hmm. Here, not so much, Um, but it's not like it's never been done before. I think the newest iterations seem to be trying to capitalize on consumer demand for more made-to-order, higher quality, fresher kind of foods, not like a nasty microwave cheeseburger, which nobody wants, right?
2: Right. Um- so- Okay, I will always have a nasty microwave cheeseburger.
0: Okay, Jeff wants it. Yes, always. if anyone's watching.
2: Mm, yes, uh, in the in the microwave the cheeseburger cheese. industry, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jeff is in. <laughs> um, so what I thought was interesting about the timing is I actually was looking at some of the research out of the pandemic on food trends because a lot has changed um, just based on people's circumstances. Uh, you would think that people would become more um, uh, packaged food friendly during Mm. the pandemic because I know a lot of people were overbuying for a while and um, having trouble getting some of that fresher stuff. But actually, demand for fresh food went up during the pandemic. Um, But I think what also happened was people were sort of pushed towards becoming more comfortable with non-traditional food acquisition Mm -hmm. platforms. For example, you know, you were used to buying fresh at the grocery store, and then the pandemic hit and consumers were enabled by things like same-day delivery um you know i know me personally i started to do more with like grocery pickup mm-hmm. grocery delivery um you know people start using amazon more whole foods fresh da- daily delivery that kind of stuff um if consumers are willing to pay more for fresh food and they're also maybe open to new formats uh, from which they will receive said food mm-hmm. then maybe this is a really good time um for companies who are, you know, are looking at the American market and saying, hey, why not here? Maybe right now, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, like, there's some stigma that maybe needs unwinding with, like, you know that, like, the um, gas station sushi was a bad choice thing? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, that joke that everybody knows, like...
1: It it still plays with the gas station burger. There's, like, one or two gas stations you can trust, and the rest are real wild cards.
0: That's true. That's true. But I do think that, like, so in the Midwest here, we have Quick Trip, um, Mm -hmm. and Quick Trip is kind of, like change the uh i don't know change the steaks i guess raise the steaks um yeah,
1: raise the burgers
0: there well they have a lot of um fresh food ready-made food options that is like pretty quite hot or high quality stuff that people will actually yeah. eat um i know you know other regions uh, of the country have that stuff too so maybe people's minds might be changing a little bit around like where they would Buy a burger. You know, it's not necessarily like something you just have to get at a traditional restaurant anymore, or you have to buy at the store and make it yourself. So I think maybe the time for putting something non traditional out there and seeing if it works is, you know, maybe now.
1: One of the things that I think is a real catch for this is all everything has to be done on that touch screen. You have to be completed with it before that burger comes out. Because, Jeff, I just feel like this has the potential to get gross really fast just having worked in kitchens that cook burgers it's not a clean process and it should be well i mean no i just mean like kitchens get dirty like kitchens get yeah. dirty there's grease yeah. there's grease fires well there, it's, you know.
2: it's a controlled environment somewhat i get what you're saying
1: yeah and burgers burgers are greasy too so that's what i'm saying you know if the burger comes out and you still have to keep paying you know like someone's gonna be like non on this burger while they're also trying to pay and i just i just see
2: this robo burger getting
1: kind of messy
2: Well, it's an automated, so there's steps. So you're not, nothing is happening until you pay. So you got to pick what you want, you pay, then everything starts the process for it. So yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to see how it goes because like you said, you're talking about beef, it's going to be greasy. Are they going to contain that a little bit? I think the fact that that, Due to the fact that the burger is maybe refrigerated as opposed to coming out of, like, the freezer or something like True. that yeah. might help a little bit. Um, but, yeah, there's definitely going to be some things involved there. It is NSF um, 25 certified, so it is does meet all the sanitary requirements for food service, which is a positive thing. I think when I looked at it and where they want to place these machines, travel centers, universities – kind of on the go type places like a quick trip or something like that is the pricing is going to be interesting because yeah. right now they're at seven bucks a burger, which I know there's the convenience factor of it, mm-hmm. but that's still a little pricey for a quarter pound cheeseburger. That's got to be a really good burger. At yeah. Seven bucks. Yeah. Now, granted, if I'm walking out of the airport at midnight driving home, I'm probably gonna pay fifteen bucks for a couple of cheeseburgers <laughs> 25, because I don't have 000. to stop anywhere, and I want a burger. Or I want something to eat. So and you're expensing it, <laughs> <laughs> unless you lose the receipt. Oh yeah, true. Damn also, it. also, mm, can always.
0: can I just point out that like we all became very accustomed to paying extra to order food off the internet, so we don't have to talk to a person on the phone. Mm-hmm. Do you think people yeah. will pay a premium for not standing in line and talking to like a human? See. Si.
1: I'm the opposite because anytime I've tried to order food, especially not directly, anytime I've tried to use a food delivery service that mm-hmm. wasn't directly associated with the restaurant, it has always been garbage. So I, uh, for me, I've gone further away from it. We actually, I mean, other than in the pandemic, because we were doing carry out mostly to support local businesses mm-hmm. and, you know, mix it up from the five meals I made for two years straight, um, I don't know now. Like uh, I feel like I've gone the other way, where I want to go in, I want to have it made, I want to talk to people. You know, I've, I've kind of gone
2: the other way. Yeah, nope. I'm with I'm with Anna on this one. I think I've gotten Less much people. more, yeah, much more comfortable Jeez. just doing everything online. Yeah, especially with the places that we've gone to, it's been very smooth. So yeah. I have not had the same issues that that you've encountered, David.
0: Yeah, it's kind of weird that you like want to.
2: Talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have a problem with that, but yeah, I mean, I'll do it if, if, it, if it's, do it's much it. <laughs> more. E- it's more efficient to go on the website and fill out a couple boxes. I mean, that's
1: true not- for some things. Yeah, like uh, for certain chain chains, it is easier. But when you want to try maybe just individually, like privately owned one-off restaurants, I've had less success trying to use a service like an Uber Eats. That, uh, you know, they're calling, making the order. Oh,
0: for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that like, because those are intermediaries, right? But yeah. Like, like, yeah, if somebody has a website, though, you would rather like friend the person on Facebook and then like ask them out to dinner and then what you're ordering or what like i mean
1: if that's how you were going about your ordering maybe that's why it's not going maybe that's why you made the switch you're just like it's like yeah she ordered the low main but then friended me on facebook and she's messaging me that she wants it three stars instead of four yeah it was that's like it weird. was
0: it was for tomorrow because she wanted to get to know me better yeah. it was just very weird wanted to make sure yeah. i was
1: the right person for the job <laughs> um one thing that i thought was that this was jeff i think this is like ray crock's dream right a fully automated kitchen no yep. worker
2: perfectly burger in a box yeah potentially um you guys definitely went more in depth on the food ordering than than i did <laughs> during the pandemic <laughs> i'll yes. say this much we had some pretty smooth systems down yeah. the other thing is we had a reader john dearden who must have this guy is fascinating. He's chimed in on everything from maritime accidents to now automated food vending. Mm-hmm. So he was talking about a couple of things that he experienced. One was French fries, a vending vending machine for French fries. Yeah. Okay. Which he said created a lot of issues because like you were mentioning the grease. Yeah. When you're deep frying French fries, that definitely became a fire hazard. So a lot of mm-hmm. people were very reluctant to have that anywhere near... They're building. Yeah. So that one didn't work out so well. Another one he mentioned that he knew of was a pizza vending machine. Mm-hmm. We've heard of these before. Yeah. But one of the issues he said they had people encountered there was actually restocking it. It would just be used so quickly that oh. the machine would be done in 10 minutes basically they couldn't keep enough stuff inside of it mm-hmm. to uh, to keep it going. So I think a lot of this <laughs> it will depend on the quality, it'll depend on the pricing and again um how If it really meets those needs to have something right away, if you're yes. standing in line at a vending machine, you're just going to go stand in line at a fast food place too. Yeah. So.
1: Well, I mean, especially if,
2: if I'm third in line and
1: I know it's six minutes a burger, I'm not hanging out 20 minutes for a $7 burger. Um. And, and to your point about uh, how things are changing, one thing that changed with the pandemic also are, are ghost kitchens, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, a lot of these restaurants don't even have a storefront. You just, they're completely online. And I saw it more of a transition for those like uh, in how ghost kitchens, they don't even have um, a delivery driver. Some just use those uh, like basically the Amazon bins where Mm -hmm. they give you a locker and you show up, grab your food out of the locker. Um, So I could I could see it being a natural transition for that. It's just not something that, uh, you know, I would necessarily be 100 percent on board with. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, could we please tie in the screen licking technology? Because oh, so
0: you could like taste the yeah yeah a so like, no. burger you know what a I, yeah, burger but tastes like taste the now, hot mustard before you put it on your burger now it's a yeah. burger
1: but you know you're gonna have a menu in there at some point,
2: and it's just like see I don't think you could I don't think that's that's where this would go sideways
1: no well I mean like we're talking you know you could drop. As easily as you could drop that patty down, you could drop a chicken breast.
2: Do you oh. think that okay? You so couldn't a, you can not cook a chicken breast on a patty griddle like that? Yeah, yes, you no. can. That's, how do you think they
1: do it at burger joints that sell a chicken breast? Do they have a special chicken it's, cooking mechanism?
2: It's different than a burger, man. <laughs> it's
1: not. I cooked them on the same thing. Well, same deal. You put the chicken breast down, and then you know what? You flip it, and then it's done.
0: And you put it on a bun.
2: Same thing. Hmm.
0: I'm just going to say the first person who licks that screen, that's the last burger they sell there. There's nobody <laughs> behind them. I just them think there's a real opportunity for synergy
1: that. here. Uh, also, the Robo Burger, no pickle. So where do you stand on that?
2: <laughs> I'm fine with it.
1: All right, me too. I'm just like, I just figured I might have some like pickle lovers here that would be, it's not a burger
2: until there's a pickle on it. See, I just look at this as more of a commodity thing. It's just the burger. Like I don't overthink it too much.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess we knew that from the, Outset when you're like, I'll do a microwave burger. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Jeff doesn't care. All right, for the refined pallets on the panel, our next story is judge orders owner to demolish Packard plant in Detroit. On March 31st, 2022, a judge ordered the dilapidated Packard auto plant in Detroit to be demolished. He said it had become a public nuisance. The building's owner, Fernando Palazuelo, and his company, Arte Express Detroit, must demolish all structures on the property, which covers several blocks. Palazuelo owns 30 parcels that, quote, significantly threatening threatening the public's health, safety, and welfare. Work has begun, or has to begin within 42 days of Sullivan's order, with cleanup completed within 90 days. If the work is not completed, the city will do it and bill Palazuelo. Now, Anna Palazuelo built a building out of foreclosure or bought it out of foreclosure for $405,000 in 2013, but he owes more than a million dollars worth of unpaid drainage bills, property taxes, and blight tickets, which just sound like a great thing. Uh, but if he's already owing millions of dollars in these back taxes, I got a feeling he's not going to pay the bill to take it down either.
0: Yeah, this is a very strange conversation. Case. Um, and my thought on it might not be what you'd think, I guess. I don't know. Just, like, it seems like Detroit's given this individual a long time to do something about the building. And I can see why they're frustrated with that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been almost 10 years. It's in the same or possibly worse condition. However, and I love Detroit. So please understand that what I say comes <clears throat> with the best of intentions. But Detroit has a lot of crumbling infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Like they have a lot of shuttered industry. They have a lot of abandoned homes. And it's unfortunately kind of the hand that they were dealt. Um, But it's to the point where the city is selling abandoned properties for pennies on the dollar in the hopes that they can be flipped and sold. And some of these neighborhoods can be revitalized. Um, Second chances for some of these old manufacturing plants, whatever. But like I saw one estimate in 2019 that said that of Detroit's 139 square miles of area, 40 square miles of that consisted of abandoned property. That's how wow. big the problem is in Detroit. Wow. So when you see this, and the article talks about blight tickets, as you mm-hmm. mentioned.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and how much that this property has amassed in property taxes, this crumbling abandoned space that was crumbling and abandoned when he bought it. Right. I don't think that this helps the redevelopment cause. I mean, you know, if you look at the AP article that we ran, he wasn't able to secure financing for the project. Um, He formally asked for a tax freeze of 12 years, which clearly was not, you know, that was in 2016. 2016, um, I guess I don't understand how you can call this one of the most blighted areas in the city and then expect more than a million dollars from this person in taxes, in blight tickets. Like, I don't usually drive in this lane, you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I think that like I normally think that entrepreneurs and business owners, they need to pay to play. They can't rely on handouts from the government for everything that they do. You got to spend money to make money just like everybody else. But in this case, like how does this public case encourage developers to like take a chance on some of these redevelopments in the Detroit area? Like mm-hmm. to me it's like really bad PR just to say the least. Yeah. I, it just I don't know, it doesn't look good to me the fact that this and and there was a lot that that story did not include mm-hmm. in terms of how this person has behaved since he bought this. And it sounds like there's been a lot of, um, you know, back and forth.
1: Yeah, he didn't even show up to the trial. Right, exactly. Yeah.
0: But, um, but it certainly does not incentivize developers to look to some of these. Because I know that other companies have been buying some of these old plants to try to redevelop them. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, doesn't encourage people to do that. And Detroit needs that to be done, you know.
1: Yeah, well, and it is. Jeff, it's a big swing. And I think, I mean, I don't want to say he bit off more than he could chew, but this is, and it, um, it would have been a massive project. What he was looking for to invest like $50 million into it. And it mean, more than that. Yeah. yeah and it means just the scale of it. I agree with you, Anna, that, uh, you know, we have, I mean, not to the scale of Detroit, but in the Madison area, we have areas where we don't know what we're going to do with that area. Uh, There was near my home. There was a chemical factory that sat sat vacant for fifty years Mm -hmm. before they were able to, you know, redevelop the land. So, I think you're right, Uh, Jeff. What do you think? Does it have to be more of a partnership between private and
2: public to try and revitalize (laughs) these areas? (laughs) I think the city of Detroit saw this guy coming and thought, "Sucker, here you go, (laughs) take it, do what you can." This is three and a half million square feet. This is the largest abandoned factory in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The pure scale of this is ridiculous. And I'm sure when this entrepreneur first bought this plot of land, he was looking at 3.5 million square feet, 400 grand. Yeah. I'll figure out something to do with this until you get in there and you see just how immense this is. And because it's so large, it's also somewhat isolated to be able to bring other businesses in there. Like they wanted to put a brew pub in there and all of these other things, getting people there would be more than daunting. Mm-hmm. Now, I also think there's another factor at play here. Less than a mile away is a brand new GM facility. Um, it's the, the ham Oh, the cr- Hamtrack track, the ham ham tram- tram- track tram- Where they're basically doing all of their new electric vehicle assembly work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm guessing GM just put hundreds of millions of dollars into this facility. They're looking across the street, seeing this broken down Studebagger factory and going, no, <laughs> we don't want this here. Detroit, we just put a bunch of money and in infrastructure and we're putting all these jobs into the city this thing needs to go. Mm. So I think that's where some of the patients with the city also ran out with this guy. Mm -hmm. Nothing was happening. I mean, this has been five years of work in progress here that something was supposed to take place. There's also been other bills that this guy has not reportedly paid in terms of for water cleanup. It's become a dump. Yeah, I mean, public nuisance is a pretty polite way of saying it's a public dump. How this place hasn't caught on fire somehow Mm -hmm. is amazing. Three years ago, they had the pedestrian bridge that went across a major throughway collapse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, but that be, then that becomes a city liability to clean up, make sure nobody there's no safety issues, all that. So, there was a lot of different stuff here going into it. We look at some of the things around here. We've got the Oscar Mayer plant. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. You know that um, that is that closed down recently. That's a huge facility. It's it's a third the size of this. I mean, yeah. less than a third. Oh yeah. yeah, And they're still figuring out things to do there, which thankfully they've turned into some storage space and there is some other things going on. But again, three and a half million square feet on the east side of Detroit. It's not a desirable place and the scale is just immense. Yeah. So I think all of those factors played into a part of this just finally becoming something the city had to step in and say, enough already. Yeah. We're knocking it down. And
1: you're right. I was uh, I was a little bit low. He wanted to invest 350 million. I missed the big three. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's a 40 acre complex. Just the scale of that is unimaginable. And talk about it being a dump. There were tires, thousands of shoes Mm -hmm. for some reason, old television and other trash that is just boats, boats. There were boats. People
2: (laughs) just dumped old boats in there.
1: That's uh, I don't know. I understand that at uh, at some point just becomes a lost cause, but I mean, maybe maybe you're right. Maybe GM just saw a new parking lot.
2: Well, I think GM just said we just don't want this blight. Basically, yeah. we're trying to generate more excitement about what we're doing here, and the city agreed. Now the city basically is going to be on the hook for this. Oh there's yeah. no there's way. no way he's yeah. going to pay for that. Mm-hmm. So
1: yeah, um, and about the blight. So blight tickets in Detroit range anywhere from fifty five dollars to $10,000, $10,030.
0: Do So do we think it's appropriate for the city of Detroit to sell a blighted plot of land to you and then issue you blight tickets?
1: <laughs> no, no, that's, I mean, uh, I think maybe the tickets started coming after uh, the welcome had sort of um, Born worn off. off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because I get it. If, if you're the city, you want to take a chance. You want it to be redeveloped. You want it to be a mixed use building, but- you know, some as a result of that uh,
2: desire to have it redeveloped, you're going to wind up making a couple of bad bets.
0: Mm-hmm. One,
2: one of the things he was trying to do to raise money is he's actually giving tours of this place, if you can believe it or not, mm-hmm. Yeah, selling tickets to go on a tour of this old car factory. Well, just the photos of him in the factory.
1: And I mean, yeah, the factory it has made cars since like the 50s. It has had other manufacturing since yeah. then. But even the photos that he took smiling in there, it's like, Are you uncomfortably smiling because you think you're about to be crushed to death? I mean, it's not, it is by no means a safe area. No, it does
0: not look nice in there.
1: It's like no one's, you don't even want to squat there. All right. Our next most popular story this week. Former GE engineer convicted of, quote, textbook example of industrial espionage. After a four-week trial, a former General Electric power engineer was convicted of conspiracy to commit economic espionage. Zhao King Zheng worked at GE Power and Water in Schenectady, New York, as a ceiling technology engineer. He and his co-conspirators tried to steal GE's trade secrets regarding its steam and gas turbine technologies and give them to Chinese companies that research, manufacture, and develop parts for turbines. Prosecutors call it, quote, a textbook example of industrial espionage. Zhang was acquitted of two counts of trade secret theft and two counts of economic espionage and the jury could not reach a verdict on seven other counts including trade secret theft economic espionage and lying to the fbi still jeff when Zhang is sentenced on august 2nd
2: he faces up to 15 years in prison and a five million dollar fine yeah it's interesting how things have developed over time i you know i've Talked about before when I was in the automotive tool and equipment marketplace. We go to trade shows and there were individuals from China coming right up to booths taking pictures of tools so they could go back and knock them off. Mm -hmm. The tactics have changed. They become a little bit more um, advanced, a little more sophisticated. And it also got me thinking a little bit about how this could impact hiring practices maybe um, in a bad way. Mm -hmm. If there started to be some judgments or some some sort of um, – generalizations made about certain people and where they're coming from and things like that. So I actually ran across this from the Center for Strategies, Center for Strategic International Studies, and they looked at all the Chinese espionage cases in the U.S. since 2000. And there's a couple of pretty interesting stats Mm. that stood out. First of all, 26% of these individuals who were involved with this were non-Chinese actors. So Mm. in other words, they were U.S. citizens who were recruited by the Chinese government to partake in these type of activities. Mm -hmm. Mm Also, the other thing that stood out is 51% of these incidents were focused on commercial technologies like this one. About a third of them were for military, and then about the, in the remainder, 15 to 16% were for targeting towards U.S. civilian agencies or politicians. So they become a lot more differentiated even in what they're going for. It's not just the high-tech stuff. It's also more commercial things like this. We're looking at ceiling technologies for turbines. The other thing is 41% of the incidents involve cyber espionage, and they were usually from state-affiliated actors. In other words, the Chinese government was backing them up yep. in what they were doing. And my whole take on this is we've talked a lot about cyber attacks and how those have become more prevalent in the, uh, the industrial sector. And I just think as, and it's not just China, there are other bad actors out there as well, as their tactics have advanced- the U.S. industrial sector also needs to start upping their game in mm-hmm. terms of security and what they're doing to protect their intellectual property, um, things that they're putting on, making available either through through the cloud or whatever their networking system is. All of this information, if it's too accessible, and we live in this age where we want greater visibility for the entire enterprise where so everybody can see what's going on and make good decisions, well, there's there's some bad stuff that can come from that as well. So it's being more aware of the whole scope of what you're making available and protecting it as well probably also being a little bit careful on who you're allowing to see this information and mm-hmm. how they're able to process it.
1: Did the center for strategic and international studies say how many of these crimes also involved half eaten peanut butter sandwiches? Or is it still <laughs> I, just the I one? don't
2: think they went that far into that deep, that, but the they one. did, uh, they it's, it's still did talk
1: just about the one guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, In talking about uh, government-sponsored espionage, Zhang and his business partner, which was also his nephew, Anna, did receive financial support from the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. And they also coordinated with the government to find uh, research agreements with state-owned Chinese institutions to develop turbine technologies. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's difficult when you see stories like this and just know that they had the full backing of the Chinese government.
0: Yes, they did. Um, but this is one of those cases, another one of those cases where the defendant is like claiming that his actions were mischaracterized. Mm-hmm. Um, I read into it a little bit. His his attorney has described him as a longtime loyal GE employee, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and when prosecutors described him as sneaky, devious, motivated by greed, his wife actually stood up in the courtroom and shouted, no. And they had <laughs> to like stop the trial. It was like on TV, you know, mm-hmm. um, I found it interesting that he was charged with 14 counts and they were not able to, like the jury acquitted him on four counts and then on seven they were deadlocked. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if it was quite as textbook as the DOJ is wanting it to sound. I'm not saying that he didn't do this, but I do know that like his legal team pointed to some disclosures he signed in 2016 where he acknowledged to GE that he had some family business interests in China. Mm. Um, And then obviously it was later determined that he emailed a bunch of files to himself using an encrypted password. And I think that was like the gotcha. Um, But the defense made it sound like he wasn't aware that anything he was doing um, involving the Chinese government was like an intentional theft of trade secrets, that it was more like... Not this premeditated thing, um, that he was like giving presentations just out of his own knowledge base and he had family links back there, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I'm not saying one way or the other, but um I don't know. The jury seems like they were maybe conflicted know. a little bit on some of these counts.
2: Maybe, but you're well, still not maybe. At well, they, at they deadlocked like, on seven no, but, counts. Yeah, and but they, they acquitted he's still him facing, on four counts. But what he's gotten charged with is yeah. twenty years in jail. That's 50. not a small thing. So what he's well, been that, convicted he could face
0: of, that he's not been sentenced yet. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. No, but I mean, it was, you're right. So to Anna's point, it was one count out of what, uh, 14, 16, 15. Yeah. Okay.
0: My point is, I guess, is that like, so the DOJ, I feel like they really relish in these types of cases. And my opinion is that yes, genuinely they're trying to go after them, but also it really pays lip service to, the fact that they're trying to do something about this issue that really bothers a lot of corporate interests and business people um, that they could be doing. Maybe if they added some teeth to some trade policies that I think would be more effective and they're not doing. So to me like this, sometimes I feel like they go after these people because they feel like let's get them and let's make a big deal about it Mm -hmm. and let's issue a press release and people will feel great about like what we're doing to solve this problem. And I don't know. I don't know how effective it is. I feel like some of these people end up getting targeted potentially mm -hmm. or, you know, I don't know. I don't know if he's mischaracterized here, but it does. Some of these acquittals and deadlocks make it feel like maybe it wasn't as textbook as the DOJ is making it sound like it was. Well,
1: it was also 2018. It Mm -hmm. was the 2018 DOJ that called it a textbook example of economic espionage. So not that there was a different agenda, but maybe there was a different uh, language that was being used back in 2018 and the different administration in terms of targeting uh, people that were working with the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is, you know, four years old. I
2: guess. But the fact, I guess I would go on the other side of this. I think it's important to hammer these guys as hard as you possibly can because there needs to be a big deterrent. Mm -hmm. And for so long, there's been able to get away with so much. At the detriment of a lot of US manufacturers. And we talked about that in the in the article. It talks about the loss of jobs, yeah. factories shutting down. I worked with a lot of small businesses that were just just had their IP stolen, just mm-hmm. outright stolen. So when it comes out like this, I would rather see law enforcement go a little overboard in targeting these folks so yeah. that there is less even contemplation of doing something. Is of a, a deterrent? Hard, yeah. And yeah, as hard of a deterrent as there can be. Yeah,
0: I'm not arguing that. I think yeah. that they are doing that. I think that they're going out of their way to make a big deal about it.
2: Mm-hmm. And as far as not knowing what was going on, when you're sharing information with the Chinese government and they're paying you for it, you know what's going on.
0: You do feel like for someone of his um, like um academic standing yeah. and understanding, and he's obviously a very intelligent person, that if you don't if this was all accidental right. then you're a pretty naive person but yeah it's hard to know
1: all right stealing is bad don't do it don't do it because chances are you will be caught and it's going to not it's going to go bad it's going to go so bad all right our next most popular story Ukraine Mondelez plant sustains quote significant damage chicago based Mondelez is the maker of Oreo cookies and other snack foods. The company has 133 manufacturing plants around the world. The company's CEO said he would close manufacturing plants in Ukraine when Russia invaded. The company scaled back, quote, non-essential activities, but continued to operate in Russia. Mondelez defended its decision to stay open in Russia by saying they were helping maintain the food supply. At the same time, an Oreo plant in Trotskyanets. A town in eastern Ukraine sustained, quote, significant damages as a result of Russia's invasion. And a telecom outages have made it difficult to reach all employees, but the company doesn't believe any employees were inj- injured in the attack. Now, we've seen a lot of companies take many different tracks here. People have pulled out immediately, people scaled back to non, you know, scaled back everything except essential um, processes, and some people have just kept business as usual. So what was your take on how Mondelez is dealing with the entire situation?
0: Well, um, yes, to your point, it's hard to cover the story of the Ukrainian plant without also mentioning the Russian operations of Mondelez, which are causing a bit of controversy and have been since the start of this conflict. Mm -hmm. And while many companies have ceased doing business in Russia, Mondelez has not. Um, do Do you believe the Mondelez line here that they've kept Russian plants running to ensure the continuity of the supply chain? Because... I think for a lot of people, it wasn't enough when the CEO said that they would transition to basic offerings mm-hmm. um, and discontinue all new capital investments, stop advertising in Russia. Like the New York Times put the company on blast um, just very recently, actually saying that, quote, we're pretty sure that Russians can live without the company's chewing gum and chocolates until Mr. Putin decides to stop killing Ukrainians. Yes. Um and to be honest, like the company really hasn't been super forthcoming about what products it believes are essential. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder what the company's Ukrainian workforce, who lose much more than their jobs in this case, um, you know, what they're thinking right now, I guess, about their employer. I mean, I understand that global companies are faced with a lot of geopolitical challenges and it's a very difficult balancing act. But Mondelez may see some future consequences for how it's handling this. Um, The New York times op-ed that I uh, read this quote from. Yeah. um, Good
1: quote. I had the same one.
0: Oh, you did. Yeah.
1: That's why it's deleted now. Oh, okay. (laughs)
0: Um, It closed with the following line. Americans who are sickened by businesses indifference to the bloodshed can make their voices heard. If the companies won't boycott Russia, boycott the companies. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know. I mean, that could Mondelez could see more of that um, if they don't take a harsher stance here. I'm not sure what their plan is going forward, but I guess we'll see.
1: No, especially as we've talked before on the podcast, I've mentioned it personally when some, when people don't like what's going on and they're looking for something they could do to create change. And it could be as simple as I'm not buying Oreos anymore for the, you know, for the immediate future or for however long that could be a substantial impact to Mondelez and its operations as a result of the choices it's making in Russia. Um, and, I mean, I would like to think that the Ukrainian workforce could be aware of what they're doing in Russia, but I just don't know how much information is out there Mm -hmm. for them to even be aware that that's happening. Yeah. Um, Jeff, what were your thoughts on how Mondelez is approaching um, operations in both um, the Ukraine and Russia?
2: Yeah, I mean, it all bleeds together. Unfortunately, whenever you look at this, when you look, this was something that happened in Ukraine obviously you're looking at why it happened and what's Mm -hmm. going on there. It led me to um, kind of investigate the Yale School of of Management puts out an index where they're tracking everything that's going on with companies in Russia and what they're up to. They track, what, 800 companies? Mm -hmm. 600 of them have, in some way, shape, or form, um, announced that they're voluntarily curtailing operations in Russia to some degree beyond what's required by international sanctions. Okay. So, and they rank them between an A, B, C, D, and F. Mm -hmm. Now, when we look at Mondelez and specifically, they get a D. Mm. They fall into the category of buying time, which are companies postponing future planned investment development and marketing while continuing substantive business in Russia. Okay. So they've got a long way to go. There's, but they're not alone. The unfortunate reality is there are still 24, 24 companies based in the U.S. that get an F in terms of what they're doing in Russia. Ooh. These are companies that are continuing business as usual in the country. Who
0: are the, some of the Fs, Yeah. So
2: here are some of them that really stood out to me. Mm. This is really unfortunate. Danaher, huge industrial mm. company. Mm-hmm. Donaldson Filtration. Dover Corporation. Huntsman Corporation. Coke or Koch Industries. Oh, yeah. Coke Industries. Um, Owens Corning. Parker Hannifin, Pentair, Zimmer Biomet, ZTE. These are some of the bigger ones that I Mm recognize. Again, there's still 24 of them that have not adjusted anything in terms of what they're doing in Russia. Now, this is a big, this story, because of these things, this is why this story needs to continue to be told and Mm -hmm. reinforced. Because there does need to be pressure put on these companies. And when you look at Mondelez, at first you can say, okay, they're a food company. They want to continue producing food for the people in Russia. Mm-hmm. However, there's still people in Russia who think that their army is going up against Nazis. Um, U.S.-backed Nazis. Right. Yeah. That's You read the New York Times article as well. Yeah. Or that's been reported a number of places. So what's going to get these people to understand what's going on? They obviously can't trust their government. They're going to see it when it impacts their day-to-day life. So it's unfortunate that these individuals would have to continue suffering as well based on the, the act of their government. But how else are they going to understand? We've got companies that are still continuing to do what they're doing. And thus, we run more of these types of articles and bring more of this stuff to light. And if these companies don't respond, the people in Russia aren't going to understand what the rich you know, Putin and the other oligarchs are doing to put all these other individuals in Ukraine, and who knows where it goes from there, in greater danger as well. And how that needs to impact them. So these stories need to continue to be told, even though we're preaching to the choir a little bit. The more pressure we can put on the international community to get that message infiltrated into more people in Russia, the better. And maybe the sooner we can see something stop. I was kind of surprised with some of the uh, names that you rattled off having an F.
1: Yeah, it's very disappointing. Yeah. Um, Anna, what were your thoughts?
0: On the F companies? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I think I agree with Jeff that like the more this stuff gets, I mean, because for us to not know that and we cover this sector. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's still a story to be told around what's yeah. happening out there. So,
2: All right. When you look at what some of these companies supply, that's going to impact people on a day-to-day basis if mm-hmm. it goes away. Mm-hmm. Well, and we talked about it a few weeks ago when, when he talked about the automotive supply chain and
1: how that's going to slow down and start impacting people. I think you're right, Jeff, is that until these uh, other operations come to a halt and it's just day-to-day business as usual for a lot of people, no one's going to know yeah. because of the amount of misinformation out there. So I mean, another we gotta do a we gotta do an I N now on all the F's, huh?
2: Yeah, keep okay. it up.
1: I like it. All right, our most popular story this week, brought to us by Anna Wells. Logbook reveals all the cars that sank on Felicity Ace. Top Gear recently found itself in possession of the manifest log from the Felicity Ace, the large cargo vessel that sank thirteen days. After a fire broke out on board, Top Gear admitted that the ship's log was difficult to read, but there were 561 Volkswagens on the ship, 189 Bentleys, 1,117 Porsches, and 85 Lambos. That's Lamborghini. In case you, in case you didn't get that, there were also there was also a 2015 Ford Mustang, one 2014 Kia Soul, a 2018 Nissan Versa Note and 12 tractors. The Ace was also transporting, transporting a 1990s-era Honda Prelude that was reportedly the 65th SIR model ever built and owned by a man named Gary, who claims online he won't receive any insurance money for his drowned vehicle because of, quote, complications. And that's really besides the point, just kind of a, a bummer for Gary. <laughs> yeah, it is. On the bright side, Lamborghini is going through, quote, great efforts And likely expense to remake the 15 Aventadors that went down with the ship. So, Anna's silver lining?
0: Uh, Yeah, I know. I like how um, they had to make a big deal about how hard they're working to, like, replace those cars. Mm -hmm. We had to press the button to turn the production line back on. I'm just kidding. I know there's more to it than that. Um, (laughs) So... uh, Motor One called this situation a car catastrophe, and for anyone oh, who read God. that, I am very sorry. Yeah. Uh, the people you really feel bad for, I think, are not the ultra-wealthy who won't get their luxury vehicles worth six figures, or even the dealers who, you know, all these are insured, right, coming straight from the factory. It's the people who lost their seem- the seemingly, like, random collection of vehicles.
1: Yeah. No, I completely agree. Like, uh, that's what the odd tidbit was in the story. Like, there are these collectors Mm -hmm. that had these rare one-off vehicles. Yeah. It's devastating to them. And I mean, you poke fun at Gary,
0: but he's got a point. No, he does. And like, so like the 2015 Mustang, the 2014 Kia Soul, there was a 1977 Land Rover Santana, which we did not talk about in our breakdown, but that's being described as extremely rare and irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. So like, what were some of these vehicles doing on the ship? Um, Well, it looks like the the one-offs seem to be destined for private buyers. So just, you know, whoever had a specific need for this 2014 Kia Soul, I would like to know what why uh. <laughs> you can't get that elsewhere, but apparently it had to be shipped over um, an ocean. But, you know, the used car market is super tough right now, so yep. who knows? It was
1: owned by Brad Pitt.
0: It, it may have been. <laughs> <laughs> I can't corroborate David's statement, but it may have been.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I did actually read the Facebook post um, from the Prelude's intended recipient, Gary Hawkins Mm. was his name. And Gary was apparently a Prelude enthusiast and waited for the chance for years to obtain this car so he could restore it. Mm. And he was pretty devastated. Um, And he said he's going to be looking for another 1996 SIR to restore and he will do so no matter what, even though he's not getting any money back from this car falling deep into the depths of the ocean. So if anyone's got a lead on that. Gary would like to know. Um, and, and crazier still, like Top Gear, it was actually their Netherlands outfit who got their hands on the actual manifest log. Mm. They said that there's another more complete manifest um, that lists even more collateral that's not even been reported. Man. Um, so, yeah. I mean, all this stuff is like a salvage mission now, probably that's going to actually cost yeah. potentially millions of dollars because they're going to need to pull some of the stuff out of the ocean i think to mitigate the environmental damage Mm -hmm. and apparently that process could take years so bad situation all around
1: well maybe once they fish it out gary'll have another chance at the
2: prelude
0: do you think he'll still want it no he's
2: he wanted to restore it yeah the reason is because that engine's pretty rare (laughs) restore it so i don't think that waterlogged engine is going to be worth a whole lot you can't you can't Dry receive. out an engine?
0: <laughs> you just get a hairdryer, right? Well, David,
2: just... I'd hate to tell the guy who knows his hardware so well about engine specifics. But... I sometimes mess up nuts and bolts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think he wants that engine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just saying it might be available once we'll, the salvage uh, is done. Maybe. I went down the Prelude wormhole. Like, I was curious why this was such a big deal. And apparently, it just is the fact that these were tough to find in North America. Ah. Mm -hmm. Um, When they initially came up, they weren't like super expensive Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But the fact that he went to this extent to like put it on a container and send it over yeah, because it is, it's an enthusiast vehicle. Apparently, I was not aware that the Prelude had such a passionate um, following. I guess it did. One of the things that I got started looking at too is just because we've been talking about these these cargo ships issues like for the last 18 months or so. And apparently it's coming down to a lot of them are over stacked. You know, mm-hmm. We've got worse weather going on. Looked at some number here. Actually, Algeria, El, Al Jazeera did a breakdown in 2020. There was the highest amount in seven years in terms of number of cargo um, containers lost overboard on ships. Seven Man. years, huh? And they just attributed it to the fact that e-commerce is mm-hmm. The driving demand, we're putting more stuff on these ships, stacking it up too high, and then you throw in more bad weather. Mm-hmm. It's a bad mix. So we're losing more stuff. And you, continue, you can see like even the way 2020 was pacing before they were able to finish off the report, it was going to set a new mark as well. So yeah. we're just losing more stuff because we're buying more stuff, harder to get, not being as safe as we should be.
1: What happened in 2013 and have you turned the volume on your laptop off? <laughs> wow. <it's> a <laughs> Pop up man, sorry, <laughs> he had to get you back yeah. for
0: that nuts and bolts comment.
1: Mm hmm, mm hmm. I don't know a nut from a bolt, but I know how to silence my computer, and by silence, I mean mute. Uh, as it turns off because <laughs> you don't have to type, <laughs> yeah, I'll type all day. Uh, no, seriously, what happened in 2013? Was there like a large, uh, I don't know, I don't know what happened there, but exactly? it was huge, huge uptick, yeah, in 2013 too. Okay, um. One thing, I, I kind of focused on uh, the Lambo part of the story because I thought that was interesting. You know, they said there will be no additional cost to those who ordered the vehicles mm-hmm. besides the time waited, which is good for the super wealthy that have been impatient.
0: The, yeah, it's been a hard time for the super we- wealthy. Yeah. You know, the last couple of years has just been a tough time.
1: No more hard breaks for the super wealthy. Gary, going to take another L. But since the Aventador run only ended a little bit ago, the factory is actually going to be able to remake the supercar pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And to your point, it's not just pushing a button. They are hand assembled and it was Lamborghini's last gas-powered V12 engine project. So it's going to take a little bit of doing.
0: It'll take some doing, for
1: sure. So the Volkswagen... Bentley and Audis lost, account for about $401 million in vehicles.
0: That is not a low number.
1: No, and but the Aventadors, 15, they lost 15 of them, account for more than $7.5 million in losses. Puke. Again, luckily, they're not going to cost them another dime. (laughs) Just a little more patience. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to, in case you missed it, we have another word from our sponsor. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications safely and cost-effectively while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. All right, and we're back with In Case You Missed It, the stories that maybe weren't as popular on the websites this week, but stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. I'm going to go first this week with a story about Mattel. Mattel advancing nearshoring in Mexican mega factory. Mattel, the company behind the WWE Hasbro retros and other toys, is (laughs) is nearshoring its operations to its plant in Monterey, Mexico. They mean a lot to certain people, Anna. (laughs) All right. The plant has a 200,000 square meter footprint and employs nearly 3,500 workers. The company spent about $50 million, that's where that $50 million came there from earlier, to expand the facility, which is now the company's largest plant. The company closed two factories in Asia and plants in Canada and Mexico and moved operations to this mega factory. Mattel plans to double the plant's investment, another 50 mil, over the next five years. Mattel said it will be more profitable and competitive than to have the product close to the consumer. Mattel's Latin American managing director, Gabriel Galvin, told Reuters that this is the latest example of how supply chain problems have created renewed interest in nearshoring from multiple industries. Jeff, I found this particularly interesting because we've heard a lot about reshoring, and this story made me turn my head
2: because we haven't heard a lot about nearshoring. Yeah. Well, I mean, Mexico has been on the radar for for a bit. You yeah. know, when we look at the low cost um, manufacturing as well as the proximity to the US market. So mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. It's what's gonna be interesting here too is you need truck drivers. Oh yeah. <laughs> for yeah. that, which we know there's also a shortage of. So you can appreciate combining operations to take advantage of those efficiencies, but there's still gonna be some logistics challenges yeah. for I would think Mattel, especially if you're pumping out that much product out of oh, one yeah. location. Um as far as the near shoring near shoring goes, it will be interesting to see how that competes with a lot of the reshoring activities we've seen in the U.S. We still see a lot of folks, especially in the automotive sector, really hitting the southeastern part of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, we do see some interesting things going on in California as well. So, will these things completely off you know balance out? Probably not. Mm-hmm. I think it is too much of a cost difference oh, what it it will come down to, and this is a little bit different because Mattel had other facilities in this area as well. So they are used to the operating environment. But will new companies, if they're contemplating the U.S. versus Mexico, will this start weighing into their decisions? Mm -hmm. Seeing a company this big, making this big much of an investment Mm -hmm. in Mexico. Well, and I was just thinking, Anna, that nearshoring, while
1: not as good for the U.S. as reshoring, is still – big could potentially be a huge trend with the supply chain issues that we've seen.
0: Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, it's a little better for the environment if mm-hmm. your end market is the U S as well. Yeah. Um, what are these so, retro? I'm looking at these Hasbro mm. WWE retro figures oh, and
1: what you're looking at right there is what I can only assume is wave one of the most recent release of WWE Hasbro retros that, uh, features Mr. T mean, Jean Oakland, uh, Bob Backlund and Roddy Piper, maybe, Wow, that's it only what I think might be though it's details. certainly not sitting on my credenza, but uh <laughs> you know everyone's got something, and i uh <laughs> everybody has pro wrestling toys on the credenza no, 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 they're currently still packaged. I gotta go hide them in the basement. they're not allowed on the credenza that's just they're in they're in a queue right now. I still nice. get to touch them before they go away um no, so you know everyone's got their everyone's got their thing, and I liked the old uh from the nineties they made. These small Hasbro toys, and then Mattel to kind of like uh, make a little money off it, made these retros, which are new character or new figures that are made in the old style, but just really cheap. They're
2: kind of garbage, but oh, you know, okay. for who's, suckers like me, yeah, gotta have it. Who's your favorite guy to go after your wrestler? Is there one that's like more rare or something? Oh
1: yeah, no. So there's there are rare ones. There's this wrestler called Adam Bomb, and there's a wrestler Crush. Wow, from Demolition. Well, like, uh, yeah, after he uh, left Demolition and became, like, you know, 90s, uh, you know, uh, what was the neon-colored crush? (laughs) Uh, But there are some rare ones out there that are difficult to get your hands on unless you're drinking and playing on eBay. Um,
0: (laughs) Do you have uh, Hmm. this set where I do have that set. Oh, and it's, like, two different tans of—
1: yeah, Hulk Hogan. No, one
0: really tan, one maybe beginning of summer. I do
1: have all the variations of, I do have all the variations of uh, the Hulkster, as well as that, uh, Andre the Giant. I just got that Berserker, and that's just one of the rockers. You know, typically you like to see him <laughs> in
2: the set. Um, it's all Shawn Michaels, no Marty Jannetty. Uh, yeah,
0: this is how you
2: spend your money. This is not how I spend. Yeah, Anna, did you or your brothers watch <laughs> wrestling growing up? No,
1: no,
0: Mm-mm, I never did.
1: It's uh it's just one of those things, you know, between uh old this very specific line of toys and uh the original Nintendo games, you know, those are my two things. Um I think it's cool. Yeah. Like it. It's uh so the the retros though, I can't I can't uh, endorse them because they are just kind of like a cheap money play for people like me <laughs> that are in our om- are almost in our forties and like, oh, I don't need it, but I've ugh, gotta have it. And it's <laughs> It's really, it's, it's all the Mr. T. In that set, you know, it's not a great set. Who wants a mean Gene, you know, character? I mean, except for staging. But uh, <laughs> in order to get Mr. T, you had to buy the other three. I'm like, all right, whatever. I mean, we'll go down a different wormhole. I'm like ordering customs and I just got this like rare Al Snow. It's coming. It's weird. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> I'll step out. And now from they're made in Mexico. Camera, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, but closer. They've there been you. near short. Uh, Anna. Mm -hmm. What is your, in case you missed it this week?
0: Okay. So speaking of the truck driver shortage, um, Walmart is doubling down on recruitment for long haul truckers. The company has launched a training program that gives employees who work in its distribution centers, a chance to become certified Walmart truck drivers through a 12 week program taught by the company's established drivers. They've also announced, and this was a little bit buried in the AP version of this story, but that they've increased starting annual pay for long haul drivers to up to $110,000 annually. Wow. wow. Um, and I think the rate is just a testament to how challenging it is right now um, in this job market and trying to fill these positions. So, um, I, interestingly enough, I read a report recently that said that up to half a million long-haul trucking jobs will be eliminated if autonomous vehicle technology can advance to accommodate all weather conditions, which is sort yeah. of its like limitation right now.
1: The albatross
0: except for um the like experts believe that it's attainable within the next few years they just they're working on it right which mm-hmm. is not there yet but long haul trucking is really like one of the first and most i think lucrative applications for this because there's you know there's last mile and first mile stuff that you need a human to do but there's tons of highway time that you really don't and that's the part that people hate mm-hmm. so the question is like is this good or bad um you know, on the one hand, these have the potential to be very high paying jobs as evidenced by Walmart's activity here. But on the other hand, the turnover rate is still extremely high. Um, And so like the problems with work-life balance, I don't know if those can be worked out. You know, I just don't know if that can be solved by pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because prior to this, Walmart was paying still like 80 something thousand dollars a year for long haul truck drivers. Yeah. Uh, and, maybe, I mean, that's a lot of money, right? So
1: <clears throat> maybe the turning point is six figures. You know, I mean, uh, I know there's a lot of people that are looking for a new new career out there. And maybe that, you know, the prospect of one hundred and ten thousand dollars could be a turning point for them.
0: And maybe it will be. But um, I do think that this this application is one where I think, you know, automation may not be the bad guy. I think oh, that we agreed. do have to maybe eat up some of those jobs with um autonomous trucking here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Walmart's trying their way right now to continue to operate with the e-commerce demand that they're facing right now. But, you know, if even the ATA, which is the American Trucking Association, they say that their turnover rate annually for long haul truckers is like sometimes 90%. Okay. Oh my like goodness. that's, how do you get around that? That's a problem that you can't solve with $10,000 You just yeah. can't, yeah. you know, something else is going on there. That job is just a lot of people well, don't like demanding. it. Well, it's demanding. It's just, it's too, yeah. yeah, there's it's, a lot
2: that involves. I like this for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, it opens up a higher um, higher paying job to more people that I think, and I think it's the kind of job that you either sort of feel you gravitate towards it or you don't really think about it, right? Mm-hmm. So when you take somebody working in the warehouse, it gives them a chance to make exponentially more, as well as maybe go down a career path that they hadn't thought about before. And mm-hmm. that is so desperately needed right now. Yeah. The other thing is I wonder if they're, and this is just, Totally, you know, when you talk about all of the issues and challenges with long haul driving, as well as the need for them, maybe there can be some sort of hybrid approach where you're driving a couple of weeks, you're in the warehouse a couple of weeks, just so you can have some balance there to even it out, so it's not such wear and tear. I mean, you it's talk a really to good some idea. Of these these guys who have been driving truck for a while, mm-hmm. their back, oh their yeah, knees, everything. I mean, it is it takes a physical toll as well. So maybe Walmart is onto something here in offering new opportunities and maybe developing some sort of hybrid approach.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that idea.
2: What do you think the uh,
1: uh, runway is until an autonomous truck is actually? I mean, I, 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 you see articles that say it could happen as soon as 2024, mm-hmm. but realistically, what five to ten years?
0: I think well within 10 years. I mean, yeah. it, they're being yeah. tested now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and that the long haul part of it is the easiest part to address with autonomous trucking. So um, yeah.
1: it just has to get to the gate and then a guy jumps in and backs it up. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. I I mean, right, Yeah. I think that's what you're going to see. Maybe you do something with the way stations mm-hmm. where they're strategically placed. And that's where you have somebody pick up the truck essentially mm-hmm. and, and guide it in. So like Anna said, they don't have to do those cross country hauls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are not enough
1: high quality. Well, there are plenty of high quality podcasts, but I just this is not a job for me
0: <laughs> to like uh, sit there and keep entertained while you're driving. You well, would need like.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's uh, you mean being the passenger in like
1: an autonomous one or driving. Oh, no, no. Driving one. We have a, actually a former colleague of ours used to be a long haul trucker. And he talks about how, you know, it was a great opportunity. He's never listened to so many books in his life, but, you know, it had a it had a finite amount of time that he could do it yeah and he had to walk away and do something else just because it, it wore on
2: him well, i think what you see with a lot of those guys they start out doing the longer hauls like that and then they gradually find a better job where they're home at night yeah mm-hmm. so they're out still on the road all day but they can sleep in their own bed so right um well talking about things that help you sleep jeff uh <laughs> what is your in case you missed it this week so I picked out an article talking about how Eno's can sense fine whiskey. Mm. So I did not realize this, but apparently there is a lot of issues um, talking about fraud and um, basically misrepresenting some of the higher priced brown alcohols out there like whiskey. So a project led by um, some professors and researchers at the University of Technology, Sydney, have basically developed um, a sensor-based system. Um, called Enos to identify differences between, and they used six different whiskeys by, and it could identify them by their brand name, where they were made, and their styles, and did it in less than four minutes. So the ones that they were looking at specifically were Johnny Walker Red and Black Label, Ardberg, Chivas Regal, and McKellen's 12 year old. And the study basically showed that the Enos, this tool, reached 100% accuracy for detecting the region, 96% for brand, 92% for style. So Nose E or an E-Nose, it's designed to mimic human smelling factors. It has eight gas sensors to detect odors in a vial of whiskey. Um, in the past, they'd have to rely on a tasting expert, a yeah. um, connoisseur that wouldn't be able to taste the differences. I was not, again, aware of how much fraud and counterfeit whiskey um, was going on out mm-hmm. there, but apparently it is a problem. The other thing I think it's interesting, though, really, is this technology can be used in a lot of other areas as well. They talked about perfume, but it can also get into a lot of other areas where counterfeiting and manufacturing, especially these higher priced items, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. People are losing tens of thousands of dollars on knockoffs. To have some technology in place that could help preserve some of those profits, I think, is a good thing. I thought it was interesting.
1: Well, there's a couple of things there, Jeff. One, uh, the nosy, which is just they nailed it. It's right on the nose. (laughs) Come on! Um, but uh, it has great uh, the these type of e noses have also a lot of ap- applicability in manufacturing yeah. in terms of sensing if there's a gas leak or any sort of other dangerous uh, particulate that's in the air. Uh, there, you know, they've even talked about drones flying around the facility or around the property with these e noses uh, to be sort of a a monitor. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, so how many counterfeit whiskeys do you think we've had because sometimes somebody opens up sometimes someone opens up that hundred dollar bottle and you sip it and you're just like oh really it's nothing God. but hot fire in there <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah i don't know my uh, my whiskey is not that expensive so i mean i do like some of the nicer stuff but not i don't know not that i was worrying about it being knocked off i guess at costco
1: well we did so uh at uh at my grandfather's funeral my brother brought a bottle, of, like one of a really good bottle of whiskey that my grandpa had. And we were all going to take these shots uh, at the service or after the service was over. Everyone got shot glasses and we took it. And it was just like, and we took the shot and it was like, oh, she's a sipper. She's a sipper. Just like, oh, <laughs> it was so. And it was, uh, you know, it was still a, a good time spent with family. But, uh, but maybe, it got a whole
2: lot better after that, right? Yeah, yeah. The ride was a lot easier. No. Uh, it's, uh Anyway, go ahead. Well, I was going to say some of the other applications too, just in detecting, um they talk about illegal, like animal smugglers and things like oh. that being traveled, being used as technology for that as well. You would think really even for any type of counterfeit substance, you know, if you're looking at drugs, um, other things people might be able to smuggle in. So, What? Illegal animal parts? <laughs> you well, know, poachers, you know, bringing in... That's a real rhino. Horns, skins. Oh, no.
1: I suppose, like... Stuff like that. If we're getting even dark, it's probably got applicability in human trafficking, too, I would assume.
2: Potentially. Oh, so, so
0: how is this being used to detect whiskeys, like... Who, where in the supply chain process is this being used? Like after you buy a bottle, you crack it and you do this at no, home? I think
2: when you're talking about ex- import-export type situations, making so sure like it is legit stuff. at
0: like Customs, they would pull I would think like Customs, a sample bottle out and do
2: it? Customs are even a bigger um, distributor, mm-hmm. you know, if they're taking in a larger shipment. So it's it's for a QC kind of in the middle. You're not like... I don't think this is a consumer tool. Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, one day.
2: like Depending uh, on how much you're paying though, I mean, if you're shelling out... I mean, some of those Irish whiskeys that I really love. I mean, they can get up there. And if you're mm-hmm. showing out five hundred thousand bucks for a bottle of booze, maybe you have one of these to make sure it's legit.
0: Five hundred <sighs>
1: $500,000
2: Yeah. Two. Oh. 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 I was like I, heard talking, I am not.
0: Yeah. I was like, just like pony up for goodness. Eno's for sure. Yeah. <laughs>
1: get on. Get on me about my
2: retros. This guy's spending half a million <laughs> bottles of booze. Like, <laughs> Um I do have a pretty successful podcast. Yeah. So man. Ooh,
0: are you guys getting paid?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I did get a free hat. <laughs> I had to steal it. Uh no.
1: I uh and this is still like prototype. Uh this is a working prototype, but I do think that any sort of move that can be made in order to cut down counterfeiting mm-hmm. would be helpful.
0: I know, it's just kind of funny to me that like <laughs> so you this get is where it. We start. Well no like you get it and then you're like I don't know and then the Eno's is like actually that is expensive <laughs> like <laughs> like Enos is just like your snotty friend but like just mm. oh this you that's that's poor man's whiskey
1: just the person that is uh over the top with the wine mm-hmm. at the table just like you know what I'm picking up I'm picking up like some vanilla mm-hmm. and a little bit of mm, is that is that like root beer Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just No, no, no. I think I think it's a tactic. I think it's a tactic. I mean, real well been at that R- dinner. Root R- beer wine, huh? I mean, yeah. All right. mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, how are you looking on trivia this week? I'm ready. You want me to go first or last? Uh, that's right. Trivia is a part of final thought. It's not a part of in case you missed it. Let's move on to our final thoughts. All right, Anna. Got a final thought this week? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh <laughs> I, I sure
0: do. Um I appreciate uh, Andy filling in for me again last week. Um, I was on vacation with my family, which was very nice. And I came back rested, but also fuzzy. And everyone's been a bit cranky this week. Oh, yeah. Because like the week back from vacation and no one wants to get out of bed. And then I'm the one who's getting all the flack for that. Like I invented the system.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Just uh, why'd you do this, mom? Yeah. Like, What, take you on a magical adventure for a week? I know,
0: right? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't, like, set the start time for elementary school. Get out of bed.
1: (laughs) What was the highlight of the trip?
0: Uh, So we went to um, Branson, Missouri, and uh, which the scenery there is beautiful. And there's a beautiful aquarium mm. that has it's like made out of this like um that looks like a disco ball except it's an octopus the building looks mm-hmm. like it you have to look it up but um that's great it was a really nice aquarium and mm-hmm. my four-year-old son got a hammerhead shark stuffy that he named hammer
2: <laughs> And after you <laughs> oh man he named it after mom he knows
0: <laughs> and hammer lives at our house now but it was um yeah it was a great trip
1: that's awesome. Well, welcome back. It was Thanks. good to have you back in the office. Um, oh, and we also we welcome somebody new to the uh, In and Mnet team. We did. Uh, we, uh, ben Munson joined the team, and it was his first week. It was really great to see. It. You know, we worked with him in the past. It's good to see him in the office again. Mm-hmm. His uh, his style is awesome, and uh, look forward to seeing him in the In videos. Uh, probably Monday
0: guest star on the podcast someday too. I'm sure. So look out oh, for that.
1: Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> For my final thought, I just wanted to reiterate that I do know the difference between nuts and bolts. (laughs) Uh, Despite my attempts to wash uh, my poor attempts off the internet. No, uh, I actually, we have, our studio has a toolbox in it, and during the commercial break, I frantically ran to it looking for a nut and bolt, to which producer Eric just said, you know what you're looking for in there?
0: David thought that it would lend credibility to himself if he just held a nut or bolt.
1: Mm -hmm. I I saw it playing out where it's just like, this is a nut and this is a bolt. It just made sense. But all I could find were what I believe are screws. All right. (laughs) And the other thing was for my final thought last week. I talked about uh, uh, going on the first date night in like four years with my wife. And we had a great time. So good. We're going to try it again this Saturday. Um, And we'll see how it goes. Good deal. Yeah. The... Babysitters crushed it. Great. Good to hear. Yeah.
2: Good to hear. Jeff, your final thought this week. Final thought is I'm going to go right into trivia. Yes. All right. So the question from last week was basically when you apply a tourniquet, there's a couple of things you should do before leaving the individual you apply the tourniquet to. We had a bunch of people that did get it right.
1: You're leaving. Handed out
2: a bunch of hats. Yeah. So you put, you apply the tourniquet. And
0: then you just walk away.
2: Yeah. Well, there may be other people you need to help. Oh, I see. Or there's okay. nothing more you can do for this individual. You want a more highly trained <laughs> All right, here's medical a
0: professional. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I'll see you later. <laughs> that,
2: that, yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, that's, that's basically how it goes. Okay. There's two things you should do. And number one, as I was trained in the Army, is to put a T on their forehead so that the next person who's coming in to take care of that person at the next level of medical care knows a tourniquet has been applied okay. because mm-hmm. it can be overlooked. So because you're cutting off blood, flood, blood flow, you want them to know that. You also wanted them to know what time the tourniquet was applied so they know how long that extremity has been going without blood. So those were the two acceptable answers. We, Like I said, we had a bunch of people get it right. Since really? Had a bunch of new hats. Yeah. Nice. Anna, can you guess how you write the <laughs> T?
1: On their forehead?
0: Oh, like what you would use? Yeah. Their blood, probably?
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: You do? You can. Oh. Whatever you got. I mean, it's not like you got a Sharpie.
0: This is a weird... weird, I don't want to be in this situation. David
2: made it weird. He took it there before he was talking about stripping people's clothes off. He just... Write a T on mm. a person's forehead and their blood and then
0: walk away.
1: What is the trivia question this week? Oh,
2: It's an interactive one, David. I'm going to let you decide where this one goes. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure. I like it. All right. So, David, we've got one of five heat categories we can discuss. Which heat category do you want to pick? The sun. (laughs)
0: Women Hot Cheetos.
2: Ale- Producer Alex, three, number three. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: Just, just the three numbers. Okay. Yeah.
2: All okay. Right. Anna. So, heat category three means we're dealing with temperatures between 85 and 88 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Okay. Um, what type of work do you think would be most applicable? Easy, moderate, or hard?
0: Do I need to answer this or this? Yes. Is-
2: you need to tell me which one.
0: Okay. Um it's,
2: a, it's like a chart here that we're using.
0: Uh did you say 85 to 88?
2: It's 85 to 88. Are you working easy? Are you doing, are you doing easy work, moderate work, or hard work? Uh easy. Easy. Okay. So if you're doing easy work, this is according mm-hmm. to the army. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're doing easy work, 88 to 80, 85 to 88 degrees. Okay. First of all, how much water should you drink in an hour? Okay. okay? First of all, how much water? And then how much rest should you have for every hour? So how many minutes of rest should you have for every hour worked? Okay. Okay? In order to avoid heat injury like... Like exhaustion. Like exhaustion, dehydration, heat stroke, those types of things. Okay. So how many minutes per hour should you rest and how much water per hour should you drink?
1: The bonus is
2: if you answer that when you're working on the sun. (laughs) That would be impressive. (laughs) What made you say the sun...
1: I thought you were talking like, <laughs> not, like uh, not one through five, like level of heat. So I wanted to say like really hot. You could have said five. I understand that now. <laughs> okay. Okay. From, this, from here on out, sun
2: equals five. From here on out, I'm just going to ask Alex <laughs> for <laughs> for feedback here. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So again, what are you going to do when you're working in 85 to 88 degrees? Heat, it's an easy level of work. How much water and how many minutes per hour should you be resting? That is the trivia question for t-shirt or hat. All right. Well, before we get out of here this
1: week, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You'd also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can email any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Finally, you can subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters. Make sure you get the podcast in your inbox first. Also remember that we go live at about 1.30 PM every day on you or every day, every Friday on YouTube. So, you know, stop by and join us live. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.